the story is told, I was given this by uh, one of my uh, policemen friends. And he's to- he gave me a story, he said, the story is told of a farmer who got pulled over by a state trooper for speeding. And the trooper started to lecture the farmer about his speed, and the general began to throw his weight around to make the farmer feel uncomfortable about his, uh, about his crime. And finally, the trooper got around to writing out the ticket. And he was writing, as he was writing, he kept swatting at some flies that were buzzing around his head. And the farmer said, are you uh, having some problems with them circle flies there? The trooper stopped writing and turned and looked at him and said, well, yes, if that's what they're called. I've never heard of circle flies. Farmer said, well, circle flies are common on farms. They're called circle flies because they're almost always found circling around the back end of a horse. The trooper said, oh, and he began to write the ticket. Then after a few moments of reflection, he turned and said, now, you're not trying to call me the back end of a horse, are you? He said, oh, no, officer, I'd never do that. I have too much respect for for law enforcement, for police officers, or ever think about calling you a horse's back end. Trooper said, oh, that's good. He started to write again. A couple minutes later, the farmer looked at him and said, but, you know, officer, sure is hard fooling them flies. <laughs> you know, the story, I, I love the story because it ties in to uh, what, we're be, what we'll be taking a look at this morning from a text standpoint, and that's Romans chapter 13. And in this passage, we find what's the clearest and most specific New Testament teaching on the Christian's responsibility to civil authority. Now, if you'll recall the last time that we met, we began to examine and to understand what God says should be true of supernatural living. That we have, that we've learned that the monumental miracle of salvation impacts every relationship that's associated with a believer's life. You know, we first saw that uh, first and foremost, we learned that our relationship to God is the one that's changed immediately and drastically. Our relationship to God. You know, the Bible says that, uh, that all of mankind, as Nathan just shared, that all of us are sinners and fall short of the glory of God. That we fall short of the standards that God has set, the standard of perfection. And because of that, we fall short and therefore we're guilty before God. We've learned that throughout our study in the book of Romans. In fact, in great detail, God went through in great lengths to help every human being understand that the the mark that he has against us or this deficiency is that every person is born. In fact, the Bible says that we are conceived in, in sin in our mother's womb. That through Adam entered into the world sin and through him came death. The wages of sin is death. You know, what's amazing to me is even as I've had opportunities, you know, to go to funerals or speak at funerals or or, or to be around memorial services is that, you know, there's always questions about why, why now, why a young person, why this or that. But there's one thing that everyone has come to an agreement and, and a conclusion, but yet they never really dig into it very far. And that's this. Why death at all? See, it seems we accept death for older people because we're we're all, you know, born to die, so to speak. And yet, when things happen and accidents and things of that nature, all of a sudden we start to ask the question, you know, not so much why death, but why now, why him, why her, why this situation? And what we really need to address is the question of why death at all? See, the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. The reason that every one of us shall die is that we are all sinners before God and condemned by God. The Bible says we have to come to recognition with that. And as as a result of sin in our life, we are at enmity, the Bible says, enemies with God. And so God says that because of that, we need to recognize that we are, as God says, guilty. 
And their relationship to God changes drastically when a person recognizes their sin and then they come to faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. The Bible says it's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God offered to all who would believe and accept that gift and had nothing to do with trying to work our way to heaven to be better people because that's impossible. And so our relationship drastically changes with God when we invite and trust Jesus Christ, His death on the cross and His resurrection for our sins. The Bible says we recognize our sin, we respond in faith to the finished work of Christ on the cross and His resurrection. And the Bible says that we're born again for those who have come to faith. That's why Paul in Romans 1.16 said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. Sufficient for all, but only applicable to those of us who believe God and take Him at His word and trust in Christ. The Bible says the moment we do that, where we enter into a new relationship with God, drastically a different one, a one that's 180 degrees from the other one. We're no longer at enmity or enemies with God. We're now, a, we're now called children of God to those who believe in His name. What a wonderful truth that that is. This new birth or being born again, as Jesus said, enters, it causes us to enter into a new relationship with God. One that God now says that our relationship, not only because it's changed with Him, it should change to other believers. The Bible says that when we come to faith in Christ that we have a love for one another that we never had before. Whereas before we may not even like, like being around, quote, Christians. God says that now the world around us will know that we're Christians by our love for one another. While we may not always agree on politics, we may not always agree on policy, we may not always agree on application of these truths and these things, the reality of what we need to come to agreement is we have a common ground. We have, we have one Father. And we have one Lord and one Savior, and that's Jesus Christ. And the Bible says because of that, while we may differ on many things, we can still agree to love one another because this love comes from God. And anyone who is born of God knows God. And the love of God is seen and made manifest in Him. 1 John chapter 4. The Bible says and because of that, we're also to have a new relationship with non-Christians. That it, it should affect or impact our life among our friends, among our family, among our co-workers, among our, our, our fellow students. Wherever we are in life, whatever lot we're in, we should have a relationship that is drastically changed now because of Christ living within us and the power of the Holy Spirit to lead us and direct us in our life. And in fact, this life is so supernatural and so radical that the Bible says it should even affect our relationship with our enemies. The Bible says to bless those who persecute you, to pray for those. Jesus said as we're persecuted to turn our cheek and offer the other side. That there's a, there's a new way of living. We're not to retaliate. We're to trust God that he judges righteously. But we're to be used by God to reach a world that is lost and fallen and in judgment and under condemnation of God. That's why for those who have come to Christ, the Bible says in Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no more condemnation to those of us who are in Christ. But for those who have never trusted Christ, the Bible says that they stand condemned before God and on their way to judgment. And we need to recognize and understand that the most important thing in life is to be used by God to reach even our enemies for the cause of Christ and the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that our relationship to God and Christians and non-Christians and even our enemies are going to be radically changed by our relationship that starts first and foremost with the God who created us. Which extends it to the very next level and uh, one that uh, is very relevant and very practical. And I love people that tell me, you know, the Bible is just not relevant or practical. I love when people tell me that. I ask them, well, then you, have you read it recently? Because what we're going to look at in Romans 13, the extension of our relationships now go to our relationship to government. 
And wow, I mean, you talk about uh, a time in this nation's history with all the confusion and the chaos that's all around us. Uh, to look for and find clarity in the Word of God is, is, is a wonderful thing to be able to do. And it's all as it relates to our relationship to government. So if you've got your Bibles with you, uh, turn to Romans chapter 13. For those who don't, if you want to look on with your neighbor or who, whoever you're with, or else if you need one, just kind of raise your hand and we'll get one to you. But in Romans chapter 13, we find the definitive passage on how a Christian should relate to governing authorities or civil authorities. In Romans chapter 13, we read these words. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those who exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has, has opposed the ordinance of God, and they, have opposed, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Then do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience's sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear and honor to whom honor. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, love therefore is the fulfillment of the law. And this do, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. As we read through this text and with the backdrop of many other uh, passages in mind, the question that arose as I was studying this, and that is this very simple question, and that's this. How are we who are aliens and strangers, the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2, how are we who are aliens and strangers in this world, whose citizenship is in heaven, who are in the world but not part of it, how are we to relate to governing authorities here on this earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're aliens and we're strangers. We're ambassadors that are set forth from Christ into the world. We're in this world. We're not of it. And yet at the same time, we have to ask the question, how do we relate to governing civil authorities? What should be our relationship to government? And that question will be addressed throughout this passage. And in fact, in the first verse, we notice the Bible says that we're to let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. The basic command is simple and very clear. The Bible says, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. Let everyone. Obviously, it's a passage that relates to all human beings because the institution of government was founded by God for the purpose of bringing about order in society. 
It was for the purpose of restraining evil. I've already mentioned that God has a very clear view of humanity and that view is that we're all sinners. We've all fallen short. And as a result, we'll begin to manifest in our action that which, which is true in our hearts. And so God, in His love for mankind, instituted government for the purpose of being able to control and restrain evil in a fallen world. You know, there are those out there that want to try to tell us that, you know, we don't live in a fallen world. And yet the evidence is overwhelming that we do. That the heart of man is continually revealed on a regular and daily basis. All one has to do is pick up the newspaper or listen to the news and find that the, man of, the heart of man is evil. And without restraints, that godly, godlessness and chaos and anarchy would reign. So the Bible says that all mankind should subject, put themselves in submission to governing authority. Specifically here, Paul refers to those of us who have come to faith in Christ that we also are to make sure, above and especially above everybody else, that we line up or submit to the civil authorities that God has placed in our life. Christianity and good citizenship should go hand in hand. They should go together. And we need to recognize and understand that in a day where there's chaos all around us and there's confusion, the Bible offers, offers clarity. God's will is revealed very clearly that you and I who have come to faith in Christ should be the best citizens that this country knows. Not only that, but we should also, it goes a little bit further than that, as we'll see, it also has to do with our attitude. It includes much more than simply just obeying the laws. It has to do with respecting those who carry those laws out. It has to do with obeying those laws and honoring those and respecting those who are in government positions. And realizing the reason that we do so is because they are God's agents for maintaining order and justice in human society. See, Paul's argument here as well, similar teachings elsewhere in the New Testament, make it clear that the principle of subjection to human authority applies to every believer. In whatever part of the world and, in what, and under whatever form of government may exist. The Word of God says, writing to believers who were, quote, scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. Peter said this in 1 Peter chapter 2. He said, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. You know that that counsel, that advice, that command that, that we just read here, even Paul himself continually subjected himself to the word of God. You know, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 16, he was falsely arrested. Not only was he falsely arrested, but he was beaten, he was persecuted. He and Silas were then thrown into a Philippian jail. They had done nothing wrong. And in fact, as the text reveals after the fact, that everything that they did was improper. It was, it was, it was improper arrest. It was false imprisonment. It was, a, it was a, a beating that took place. I mean, everything that went on and went down in that situation was just wrong before God. But you know what Paul and Silas did in the midst of all of that? When you have a chance, read Acts 16, because as they were arrested and put into prison, the Bible tells us that they didn't cry out injustice. They didn't cry out that, you know what, this just isn't right. 
They weren't yelling from their jail cells. They were put in stockades and in chains and they were bound to, their, to those who were guarding them. He didn't, they didn't cry out injustice at all. You know what the Bible says that they did? In Acts 16.25 it says, They were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. In the midst of all of that, they were praying and singing hymns to God. And not only that, they used it as an opportunity to share the love of God that's found in Jesus Christ with those who had falsely and wrongly imprisoned them. Oh, wow. What a wonderful truth that is for all of us to understand. They know who's in control. They knew that God was in control. They knew that God didn't allow to happen to them what happened to them without there being a purpose behind all of it. And even though they may not have understood it at the time they were being beaten and thrown in prison, one thing that they recognized when they finally sat down and they were chained to their, their, their jailers, they said, hey, you know what? This is awesome. And I believe that they were praying and they were praising God because they were considered worthy to be persecuted for the name of Jesus Christ, for his name's sake. Blessed are you who are persecuted for my name's sake. What a wonderful truth that is to be persecuted because they were telling people that they were sinners and that they needed to trust in Jesus Christ if they were to, to, uh, to prevail against the gates of hell. The Bible says they praised God for the persecution that they were enduring. The point is this, that believers are to be model citizens, known as law-abiding and obedient, respectful, not stirring up trouble or rebellious or demeaning towards those in authority. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't speak out against sin or against immorality and against ungodliness because we must continue to do so with fearless dedication before the Lord. But we do it within the framework of civil law and with respect for civil authorities. The Bible says that we are also to be subject. The word submission or subjection has to do with that of a military officer placing himself under the authority of his commanding officer. It's not only a command, which it is, be subject. It's not an option. It's not something that, well, you know, it's just like the Bible says, children, what? Obey your parents in the Lord. Be subject to them. It's not, a, it's not an option. It's a command of God. Now, it takes it a step further in that not only should we be subject because it's a command of God to those who are in, in civil authority over us, but God takes it one step further and it has to do with our heart, and that's this, that we willingly place ourselves under the authority of those that God has placed in society to maintain order and law and to protect righteous people from those who would do that which is wrong. See, because ultimately our authority is God. And we're in subject to him. But because it's God who instituted authority, he says, because I'm the one who instituted it for my namesake or for my purpose, I want you not only to be in subject to civil authorities, but I want you to do so with a willing spirit and a willing attitude, which ties into what? Everything that we're talking about. To offer our lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, not conformed to the way the world does things, but transformed by the renewing of our mind as we learn from the word of God that God says, place yourself in subjection willingly that you may know what? What the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. People struggle and they're like, you know, God, what's your will through this election process? What's your will? Hey, you know what? God reveals his will very clearly. There are many times we're always seeking God's will and he says, hey man, all you got to do is read my word. I've already revealed it to you. It's not that it's not revealed, it's you don't like what it says. And so you want to change it to say something that it doesn't. And you want it to line up with how you think instead of how I think. And the Bible says, you know what, if you love God first, we set our will aside and we, and we accommodate or we place God's will foremost in our life. That we're to be in subjection 
Paul gives, listen, this is very important too because the Bible gives no qualification or condition. Every civil authority is to be submitted to willingly. In 1 Timothy, he says this, 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, he says, that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. There's no exception related to the ruler's competence or incompetence, his morality or immorality, his cruelty or kindness or godliness or ungodliness, his political party association or affiliation. There are no qualifications to this whatsoever. The playing field has been equalized by us, for, by God, and that we are to pray for all and submit to all. To Titus, he said, remind them to be subject, speaking of believers, to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one. To be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Titus 3, verses 1 and 2. He said the same thing to the Thessalonians. When he said, he goes, to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you may behave properly toward unbelievers and not in any need. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12. The principle of civil obedience is taught clearly throughout all of the word of God. There, you, there's no way to get around that. Now, I realize that some of you are thinking as I was thinking. I said, but God, aren't there any exceptions to this rule? Aren't there any times when we can not submit to earthly authority? And the word of God is clear that there are. But the only exception is this. Anytime any government or any law commands that we would disobey the clearly revealed will of God and His Word is the only time that we cannot, in good conscience before God, do that which is evil in the sight of God. Now, the examples are very clear throughout Scripture. I want to just give you a quick overview so that you understand and clearly understand the exception. The exception rule is when we are asked to do that which God clearly reveals as against His character and against His law, we must stand firm and say we must obey God rather than man. For example, in the Old Testament, Pharaoh ordered the Jewish midwives to kill all male babies when they were born. The Bible says that these midwives feared God and did not, as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live in Exodus 1.17. Because they were, these women refused to disobey God by committing murder, God honored that civil disobedience and said it was good to the, he was good to the midwives and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Daniel, Shadrach, and, Amish, and Abednego. Another beautiful example, as we went through the book of Daniel together, you may recall that they were asked and commanded by the king to eat that which God had clearly forbidden in his word. And the Bible says that Daniel and his friends got together and they realized that they couldn't do what they were commanded to do under their captives. And they went to the king, and they went to the person that the king had placed in their charge and said, listen, they sought permission to do that which was different than what they were being told to do. And they basically said, listen, you know what? We can't eat that meat that are offered idols. We can't eat the meat or the food that, that God clearly says would be against his word. We can't do any of that uh, for conscience sake before God. But we offer you an alternative. And they sought permission to eat a daily uh, diet of vegetables and water versus what they were being offered. And God in his graciousness moved in the heart of those people to allow that to happen. And it set a precedent for every time that they were commanded to do something that was wrong before God. The same approach was taken. 
We see that in the fiery furnace when they were told to worship that image that, that Nebuchadnezzar had built. And the Bible clearly teaches and reveals that the, that the greatest commandment is we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that we bow down and worship no other gods. For our God is a jealous God, and there shall be none that are before Him. They were asked to do what was clearly revealed in the Word of God, and they could not do it because it would be sin before God. And so we see the results of the fiery furnace. And remember, when they were thrown into the furnace, they went willingly. They didn't go kicking and screaming. They didn't rebel against civil authorities. They recognized that that civil authority had the right to do what they were about to do. They had broken the law of that land for a higher calling, which was to be obedient to God. And they walked willingly into that furnace. And before they went in, they said, we don't know what God's going to do. We don't know if God's going to save us or not. We don't know if he's going to spare us or not. We don't know what's going to happen. But we do know this, that we trust him and will never bow down before your idol. And they walked into the furnace. And God chose in His sovereignty to spare them and to use it as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which was their spiritual or reasonable surface of worship. We see it again in Daniel when he was commanded not to pray to God anymore. And he went up into his room and he did what he had always done and he opened his window and he prayed and they knew where they would find him. They knew how consistent he was in his relationship with God. They knew when he would be praying and they went up and found him doing exactly as he always did regardless of the law that was just passed. The law was an unjust law. The law was a wicked law. The law was basically established for one purpose, to set Daniel up because they knew that he'd not fail in any other area of life other than he would disobey a civil law that was in conflict with the laws of his God. They knew that. And you know what? They arrested him. And guess what? He didn't go kicking and screaming and fighting and calling injustice. He went because he knew that God is sovereign and in control. And they threw him in a, in, a, in a lion's den. And he said the same thing. I cannot stop praying to my God. And they threw him in a lion's den. And the Bible says he avenged those who were wicked and corrupt and established those godless laws for the purpose of condemning an innocent and righteous man. And the Bible, the Bible says that God avenged that wrong. That's why even Jesus himself said that, you know what, he didn't try to avenge himself. He continually trusted God and trusted himself to God, 1 Peter chapter 2, who judges righteously. The Bible is filled with examples of people, men and women, who violated civil law only because the greater law of God was clearly established. But it's important that we understand in every situation, in every case, they respected civil authority. They obeyed the law from the standpoint of being willing to pay the, pay the fine or pay the price for the crime and understood that every government was subjected or put into place by God himself. In the New Testament, the Bible says, when the Jewish leaders of Jerusalem warned Peter and John, he says in Acts 4.18, you cannot speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. That's what they were told to do. They were said, stop telling people that they're sinners. Stop telling people that they need to trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. You've got to stop doing that. And here's what they said. Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and what we have heard. And I've read that many times. It was the first time the thing, that one thought really grabbed me was this. They said, you be the judge. It is within your authority to be the judge. If you judge us as being guilty of violating your law, so be it, and we'll pay the price, and we'll do whatever it is. In fact, you be the judge. But we can't stop speaking about Jesus because it was Jesus who commanded us to go into all the world and be his witness. 
to tell people about the love of God and, and the sin of man and the love of God that's found in Christ for the redemption of man or buying man back to God and reconciling man back to God. I can't stop, t I can't stop telling people about Jesus because the greater authority of God was given to me and that's why they went on to say, you know what, we, they said, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in his name and behold, you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man, Jesus, blood upon us. Peter said to them, we must obey God rather than men. See, while the exception exists in the midst of the world that we live in today, even including many communist lands, Christians seldom, if ever, face the need to obey God rather than man. I'm going to ask you a very serious question that you need to take to heart, and that is this. When was the last time anyone in, in authority in your life asked you to choose to do that which is clearly wrong and revealed in Scripture against the principles of God? When was the last time someone said to you, we want you to murder somebody? When was the last time someone said to you, we want you to lie or cheat or steal? When was the last time somebody said to you, I don't want you telling anybody about Jesus anymore? I mean, be honest with yourself. When was the last time that anyone ever confronted you with that type of command or that type of initiative? I'm gonna, it's never happened in my life. And yet we look for reasons to be rebellious towards authority. And the Bible says that every person should be subject to the governing authorities, regardless of who God chooses to elevate to president of this land. It's important to realize as Christians in this nation, regardless of our personal preference and our personal party affiliations, we all are to submit, to pray, to obey, and respect civil authority. Simple, plain, clear, eliminating much confusion in our culture today. Whoever it is, I've got peace to know that God is in control. In the meantime, we've got a window of opportunity to continue to pray. And we must continue to do so because the Bible says to. We are to pray without ceasing. We are to pray for righteousness. We are to pray for godliness. We are to pray for holiness. And yet at the same time, we must understand that uh, this witness of being civil obedience, uh, of civil obedience and respect and, and, and law-abiding citizens is a, is a tremendous example of living a supernatural life. Because the heart of man doesn't want to submit to authority. It's in rebellion against God, the ultimate authority, and it manifests itself in every other way. So now we're going to go through at record-breaking speed four reasons that God gives for our submission to human authority. Number one, we're to do it for wrath's sake. Wrath's sake is what we find in verses one through four. One through four, and under this point, there are several things that we're going to take a look at, and we'll look at them as clearly, concisely, and quickly as we can so we cover the ground, but that's this. The first thing that we, under that we understand from this passage that... There is no authority except from God, and those who exist are established by God. You follow that? All authority, all government is by divine decree. God has established it. First, Paul says, human authority is ordained by God for the benefit of society, and whatever the many forms that it exists, civil authority derives directly from God. It's like marriage. It's universal institution of God, and it's to be uh, obeyed regardless of place, circumstance, or any other consideration. There's no civil authority except from God. Isn't that a hard thing sometimes to understand? No matter what form that it takes, no human government at any time in human history, at any place on earth, among any people on the earth, at any level of society has ever existed or will exist apart from the sovereign authority of God because the Bible says power belongs to God, Psalm 62:11. Even Satan and the authority that God has allowed him to have comes because God is sovereign. 
I don't always understand all this stuff, but I can understand what the Bible clearly says. And what it clearly says is what I need to keep in mind as far as obedience is concerned. Even ruthless and demonic regimes, you think of Hitler and Stalin and Mao Zedong and people of that nature, even throughout Assyria and Babylon, the Roman Empire. I want you to stop and think when this was being written. It was being written at a time to a group of people in Rome where there was 20 million free citizens and 60 million slaves. It was being preached and taught to people that were under a godless regime where Caesars equated themselves to being on the same level as God and wanted to be worshipped as such. It was written in a day where people like Herod murdered with impunity. It enraged him when he found out that the Christ or the Savior was born. And he sent his, his troops into all the land to murder every child that was born, male child, up to the age of two years old. He murdered him with impunity. He murdered John the Baptist for preaching the righteousness of God and saying that you are messing around with a woman that's, that's not your wife. You're guilty of adultery and sin before God. And you are fallen as God says that you are. And Herod in his rage took him and threw him in the prison and beheaded him because he preached what was right. That's when this was being written. There's no exceptions to that. All power and authority comes from God. I love a quote that I saw not too long ago I want to share with you because it says this. People who love sausage and respect the law should never watch either one being made. beautiful it's true see in Acts 17 here's what Paul said the God who made the world and all things in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth does not dwell in temples made with hands neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things he made from one every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth having determined their appointed times and their boundaries and their habitation the primary reason we're to submit to human authority is that it is instituted by a decree of God. God is the ultimate one in control. goes on to say this. Therefore, verse 2, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. You got it? Why else should we submit to the authorities that God has placed in our life, civil authorities? Because when we rebel against them, we ultimately rebel against God. Because God is the one that placed authority in our life. When a child rebels against his parents, he is ultimately rebelling against God. Because it is God who's established authority and structure. When citizens disobey their governing authorities with no exception to the word of God, and do so because we just don't like what they're saying or they're doing or they want us to do, the Bible says that we are in rebellion against God himself because God established authority and we have forgotten that there's no one that's in authority that isn't there because God has put him there. He has established the boundaries. He has established the timelines. He has established that which he has done for his purposes and to bring about his glory and his ultimate kingdom. We need to recognize and understand the people of God ought to consider resistance to government under which they live as a very awful crime. Resistance to God himself. The word of God is filled with examples of men who rebelled against authority. We go back to the Old Testament. God placed Moses in authority and the people rose up that says they assembled together against Moses in Numbers chapter 16. And God responded to their rebellion by opening up the ground underneath them. And 250 of the rebels fell into the hole that God had opened up underneath them. And then God struck them with lightning just to make another point. Kind of an exclamation point. The Bible says 14,000 of them fell because of their rebellion against Moses and his leadership and his authority. King Saul later found out that rebellion is as the sin of divination, the sin of witchcraft. 
Saul's rebellion against God, God looked at as being as bad as the sin of witchcraft, which the Old Testament called for death. There's no room in God's administration for rebellion against the authority of God. A rebellion against the authority of the Word of God. God's Word is clear, and when you and I, as His people, choose to rebel against God by being disobedient to the clearly revealed Word of God, the Bible says that we are in a rebellion against the authority of God. It's as if we're shaking our fist in the face of God, saying, you can't tell me what to do. Which one of us, as, as parents, would want any of our children to stand in our face and blatantly and violently tell us, you can't tell me what to do. And yet we do the same as we shake our fist in the face of God, as if somehow He can't tell us what to do? The Bible says that all authority is established by God. And, all, and resistant to it is a, is a rebellion against God Himself. He goes on and says, And they, notice, who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Don't miss that. You and I cannot rebel against civil authority without experience the consequences of such rebellion. We need to recognize and understand we better be on a real solid platform because notice that Daniel, Meshach, Abednego, that the, the Jewish midwives, every one of them who rebelled, Peter and Paul, and everyone who rebelled against the civil authority were willing to accept the consequences. The point is this, if we cannot in good conscience before God obey civil authority, God says then we are to accept the consequences that are laid out by the authority that's established by God. If it means going to prison, we go to prison willfully. And we, and we praise God for the opportunity to be persecuted for His name's sake. We need to recognize and understand the Word of God is very clear. In fact, a very striking illustration for me was if you remember in the garden when Jesus was being arrested, Peter grabbed his sword. And the Bible says that Jesus told Peter, put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. What he was saying was very true, and that's this. Peter, I'm telling you right now, if you kill this man then the authority has every right under God, which has been established, to take your own life for the murder that you just committed. So every person who lives by the sword shall die by the sword, and Jesus didn't reject the notion that they had the right to do so because he knew that they did. So authority established by God. You know, for rulers, notice in verse 3, are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. If you want to have no fear of authority, then do what is good, and you'll have praise for the same. I love that. Notice that. We're to submit to civil authority because God's ordained it as a means of restraining evil. We live in a world where there is evil. And as a result, we need all the help that God has given us in establishing government and civil authority and law to restrain evil in the world. Without law, we have anarchy. And those who don't submit to the law open a can of worms for that to take place. That is why what is taking place in our nation is so critical that we continue to pray for righteousness and for justice. Because those who will not submit to the law open the door for anarchy to reign. That's why there are election laws. That's why that, that every party willingly submits to those laws going into an election. Because they know if we start doing what we see happening now that it just the whole system crumbles and is destroyed the very foundation of all of it when anybody any individual or any group of people think that they're above the law or that they will manipulate the law and try to get something to say what it doesn't say for their own political purpose or cause or individual cause it undermines everything that God has established he's established law for the purpose of restraining evil because we are all sinners but saved by the grace of God those who come to faith in Christ 
without laws and we are left on our own, we would do that which is convenient to ourselves, that which brings pleasure to ourselves, that which in some way enhances ourselves. And the Bible says, man, I got to restrain evil, God says, because if without restraint of evil, lawlessness will prevail. All we do is go back through history and there are times in the nation of Israel when each person did what was right in his or own own sight, God said there was nothing but anarchy. It's important that we realize that, that government was established to restrain evil. It also is promoted to serve good. Notice that, for rulers aren't a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. You want to have no fear of authority? Do what's good, and you'll have praise from the same. What is he saying? Hey, that God has established laws in our life to protect us and to promote good. Oftentimes, we don't even know the goodness that God has, has placed around us because of the restraint of evil. We don't realize what a wonderful thing it is at times to be able to drive alone at night. To be able to walk the streets of our neighborhood. To be able to have the freedoms that we do without the restraint of evil and laws. We wouldn't have that opportunity to enjoy the freedoms that we have because evil is restrained. All you have to do is live or grow up in areas of our country where lawlessness abounds. And you see the fear in the eyes of citizens who lock themselves behind locked doors and closed doors and have bars on their windows and bars on, on their doors. And, and they, they're afraid to go out during certain times of the evening. Because lawlessness reigns. The Bible says that God's government and civil authority is to promote good in society. Some of us don't even recognize it. One of my favorite stories is this. On a foggy night at sea, the ship's captain saw what appeared to be lights of another ship leading or heading toward him. He instructed his signal man to contact the other ship by signal light and he sent this message. Change your course 10 degrees to the north. The reply came. Change your course 10 degrees to the south. The captain responded, I am a captain. Change your course 10 degrees to the north. The return response was, well, I'm only a seaman first class, but you change your course 10 degrees to the south. The captain was furious, outranking a seaman first class. He said, send this signal. I am a battleship. You change your course 10 degrees to the north. And the final reply was this, I am a lighthouse. You change your course 10 degrees to the south. You see, that rebellious heart of man has to be rooted out so that we see the good that God is doing through civil authorities. Rulers are empowered by God to inflict punishment. We already saw that for the sake of obedience. Hey, if you do what's good, don't fear. For it's a minister of God to you in verse 4. But if you do what's evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. It's a minister of God, an avenger who brings upon the one who practices evil. See, Jesus didn't argue that all right. He just gave a great illustration of that. He said, hey, the whole purpose of government is to restrain evil. And Peter, what you're about to do in killing another person is evil. And it's wrong before God. And as a result, the civil authority is in a position that if you kill that person, you also die by the sword. We need to understand that and realize that. And, 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 and righteousness has to prevail. Because the Bible says that the blood of innocence, those who are innocent, and the blood of, their blood cries out before the very God of this heaven. In this universe. You know, I mean, think about this. When, 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 uh, you know, when you look at Cain and Abel, and Cain killed Abel, and God confronted Cain and said, where's your brother? He said, I don't know. What am I, my brother's keeper? I don't know where he is. Why are you asking me that? He said, what have you done? Cain was like, what are you talking about? He said, what have you done to your brother? Cain said, what? I don't understand. And God said, the blood, your brother's blood is crying out before me when righteous people don't rule 
and government doesn't step in and restrain evil. And government promotes evil rather than restrain evil. When government doesn't do that which it's ordained by God to do, and that is protect innocent lives, the blood of those innocent lives shouts out before God to avenge that wrong. The blood of Jesus Christ came before the very throne room of God. And the Bible says because of that, because of sin, because of Jesus' death on the cross, that that death and that blood, his blood will one day be avenged. He entrusted himself to God who judges righteously, but God will avenge that blood. He was innocent and he was murdered for our sin. He allowed it to happen. It was ordained by God for it to happen before the foundation of the world. And it happened voluntarily because Jesus gave himself up. And yet from a human perspective, he was murdered as an innocent man. That's why they said, you're going to have this man's blood on our hands. He was innocent. And I mentioned last time, and I'm going to mention again, 35 million innocent lives in this country have been murdered. All under the deceptive title of a woman's right to choose. And when a nation doesn't respond righteously and do what is right, make no mistake about it, God will avenge those lives. God hears their cry. God will step in and judge. And I cannot help but wonder if what is happening today is the start of that process. Because God has been more than patient with this nation for 30 years and 35 million lives that have been murdered. As a woman's right to choose, we need to pray for righteousness. We need to pray for godliness. We need to pray that men and women who are righteous and godly will inherit the highest offices of this land for the purpose of being able to change that which is wrong to do that which is right before God. That's one of the reasons we must continue to pray. That's one of the reasons that we must continue to vote. That's one reason we must continue not to be apathetic to the process because we see the results of those who do not care. We need to be model citizens and obedient in everything that we do. We need to recognize all of that. The Bible says it's for conscience sake before God that we should be men and women who do what is right before God. That our, Let our conscience be our guide because the Bible says our conscience has been given to us to know the difference between right or wrong. Thank God that God forgives sin. And I know many men, I know many men and women have been involved in the decision of aborting a child. And I know that God is gracious and compassionate and His loving kindness is extended to all of us who sin and that God wants to and will forgive those who confess their sin. God says He'll cleanse us even from all unrighteousness. But there's no, there's no doubt about the reality of our consequence and I've talked to many women who have made that choice and the consequence, even though God promises in His Word to forgive all sin as we confess our sin and we believe that and we understand that truth, the consequence continues to live in the decisions that we make in this lifetime. We need to learn from our mistakes so that we don't repeat our mistakes, so that we turn from our sin and we turn back to God. And as we have godly people in leadership, then we can also thank God and praise them. Because when the righteous rule, the people rejoice. But when the wicked are in office, the people perish. For conscience' sake, to do what's right before God is another reason that we're to do this. He goes on to say, for conscience' sake, we're to do this. It's necessary to be in a subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for what? Conscience' sake. 
And part of the conscience sake is this. We, because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. I hate taxes. You hate taxes. I've hardly met anybody that's ever said, I love taxes. The people that love taxes are the people that are getting the tax money from somebody else because they're not working and paying taxes. They're the only people I know that I love taxes. I think that's a great tax. And, 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 but yet at the same time, God says, a, a part of being a responsible, obedient citizen is that we pay our taxes. It's part of our living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual service of worship. There, there should never be a time where any of us as believers, we may not like where those taxes are spent. We may not like, not like where that money and the programs it goes to. But we need to recognize and understand our, our primary responsibility is to God. And God says, pay your taxes. That's why it's important to, to, to vote and, and pay people, put people in office who understand the purpose of taxation. But on the other hand, we should never use that as an excuse to be disobedient for God, to cheat on our taxes, to manipulate on our taxes, not to pay the proper taxes that are due. Every one of us, Christians alike, citizens alike, should use every legal avenue or remedy to lower our tax base. That would be poor stewardship not doing it. But when it's all said and done, pay your taxes. Why? Because it's pleasing in the sight of God. And if we don't do it, guess what? Our conscience drives us crazy. Let me give you an example of a letter sent to the IRS. The letter said this. Enclosed, you'll find a check for $1,500. I cheated on my taxes and I cannot sleep. If I continue not to be able to sleep, I'll send you the rest. <laughs> Token gesture at best. We're also to submit to authority for what? For love's sake. Notice that. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Listen to what he's saying. God is saying that if we love each other, we won't, you know, we don't even need laws if we would just love each other. So if you love each other, you won't commit adultery. You won't murder. You won't steal. You won't covet. And if there's any other commandment, it all falls in line with the second commandment, which was love your neighbor as yourself. For if you love God first, you love your neighbor second, all of the word of God is summed up in those two commandments, the Bible says. That if we love one another, we wouldn't even need laws. But because of sin, and sin reigns in this, in, in this, in this universe, we need laws to restrain evil. But you and I who know Christ, you and I who have the love of God residing in us, if we love one another, we don't even need any laws because the law of God pervades and prevails in our heart. And, and we, we live out what God says we should be to those who are around us. We won't lie. We won't cheat. We won't hurt other people. We'll do what's right and honorable before God. Why? Because we love people. We love God first. We love people second. Everything falls in line. Notice the motivation. For wrath's sake, well, we better submit because what? I'm afraid. I'm afraid to get caught. For conscience sake, well, it goes a little deeper. You know what? I know the difference as a believer between right and wrong. Then for love's sake, which is a, one of the highest uh, ultimate motivations in doing anything. And finally, we're to, we're to do it for Jesus' sake. It's a living sacrifice. And this do, verse 11, knowing that the time, knowing the time, it is already the hour for you to wake up from your sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to them who believe. God is trying to give us all a wake-up call. Why do we put so much faith and trust and confidence in human institutions, though instituted by government, but are run by, instituted by God, run by people? Do you and I really believe that government is going to change the heart of man? Paul didn't say, I, I'm not ashamed of the government. For it's the government that is powerful to bring about salvation. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the gospel of Jesus Christ 
that's the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and to the Greek. Why are we putting so much faith and trust in, 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 in human institutions that are run by weak and failing and sinful people? We need to put our trust in God. God says, wake up. He says, the night is almost gone, the day is at hand. Live like we're living in the day and throw aside the deeds of darkness. Start living a life that conforms to who we say that we are in Christ. And finally, he says, don't behave let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, sexual promiscuity, sensuality and strife and jealousy. It says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Wake up, throw off, put on Jesus Christ. Be used by God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is our reasonable spiritual service of worship. Stop being conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we'll know what God's will is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Wake up, the Bible says, because not only may today be the day that's appointed for you and I to die and then comes judgment, but even today may be the day that our Lord Jesus Christ returns. And we get so hung up on the temporary and all I'm going to challenge you to do is consider this. Can we not put the same amount of passion and energy into sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with those around us that we put into talking and debating about a political election? Can we not put in the same passion and, and, and enthusiasm and discussing? When was the last time you talked to somebody about Jesus with the same enthusiasm you talked to him about what was going on in this election? God help us. Because we are getting hung up on the temporary and let us not forget the backdrop of eternity. We are to live godly lives in the midst of a godless generation and a perverse generation. God is to use us as believers as we obey civil authority and respect them and show obedience to them and preference to them. And as we are honoring to him, God will use that so that we are salt and we are light in a generation that is living in darkness. We're to be used by God to share the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's only the gospel that can save people from the condemnation and the wrath and the judgment of God. No political machine, no office, no party, no, no president that is in this election or any that will ever come will ever be able to save people from the condemnation and the judgment of God. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can do that. We need to recognize that and understand that. President Clinton, Vice President Gore, Government Bush, the Bible says that all human beings, regardless of our lofty positions here on earth, Nebuchadnezzar, we go back through human history, every leader that there was, every government ruler that ever sat on his throne, the Bible says that Jesus has been given a name above every other name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God. Those of us who do so now here on this earth will reign with them for eternity and enjoy the benefits and the inheritance that is ours in Christ. Those who do not, the last thing that you do will kneel before Jesus Christ before you are condemned for all of eternity. The Bible says no government can ever save you from that faith, but only Jesus Christ and him crucified. Father, we thank you for the clarity again of your word. God, help us to become obedient in how we live. We just pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.